You're listening to episode 11 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to episode 11 of Chat About Children. Today we are continuing the chat from part one, attention, learning and your child with Jackie Peel. So I am going to just get this chat started. So joining me for part two for Attention, Learning and Your Child is Jackie Peel. Jackie did join me for a chat in part one. She is an occupational therapist. And for those of you who didn't tune in to part one, let me tell you a little bit about her. Jackie in 2010 started Early Links in the Sutherland Shire in Sydney, Australia. And she now leads a team of occupational therapists who support children, teens and young adults with practical strategies which make daily life easier. Jackie is passionate about education and her love of learning has helped create new approaches for treating anxiety and sensory processing difficulties. Jackie has also presented at national occupational therapy conferences and is a member of several organizations advocating for greater support and understanding for children who otherwise fall through the gaps. Welcome to part two, Jackie. Yeah, thanks for having me again. We had an awesome chat in part one. We talked so much about what attention is, different subtypes of attention. We talked about why attention difficulties happen in the first place. And we also looked at signs and symptoms of an attention difficulty. And it is a huge topic, isn't it? Is it something that you work on a lot in your day to day? Hugely. I think whether that's the main reason why kids and families come to see us or not, I think at every stage, whether it's little babies that we're working on early stage developmental goals or whether we're working right through as our young teenagers and and kids in primary school around learning, attention is always something that comes up in conversation and comes up in our therapy plans. Absolutely. And that's why I guess part two was really needed because it is such a huge topic. It is an area that so many families are struggling with. And our conversation today, what we're going to talk about is a little bit more about how attention develops. We're going to look at how we grow attention skills, which I'm very curious about. And then we also are touching on ADD and ADHD because that comes up so much, I imagine, on your caseload. And even on my caseload, you know, as a speech pathologist, we often see children that have ticked that box. And then beyond that, we're also going to look at what an occupational therapy assessment looks like for attention and also what to expect from therapy. So there's quite a bit that we're going to chat about today, Jackie. There is. And I think it all fits together really nicely from that first conversation we had around what is attention and what some of those difficulties look like in practice. I'm really keen to share a lot of those strategies on how do we actually grow attention? How do we start from the very beginning and make sure there aren't any gaps in that attention system? Because I think that's something that once you understand that process, it's attention is something that because it is so ingrained in our day-to-day experience of the world, it's certainly something that parents and teachers, once you know a little bit about the theory, you can really start to create your own practical strategies and your own ways to develop that attention system without needing to sort of do it as a specific additional exercise or activity can be just embedded in day-to-day. That is perfect. And that's what I think most of us want to hear, to be quite honest. So if we take it back to how attention develops in the early years, start us off there and tell us a little bit about how it does actually develop. Yeah, certainly. Look, I think if we think about a really, really young baby, a couple of months of age, As adults, what do we do with a baby that's young? We go right up close to them 
we turn our voices into chipmunks, we turn up all the emotion in our face and we try our, our very hardest to get that child's attention. Babies don't have a well-formed attention system that allows them to concentrate and process large amounts of information like we expect our students to at school. But in that early stage of development, it's about the adult doing the work to be or the environment doing the work so that the child goes, oh, what's that? It's bright. It's shiny. It makes a funny noise. I want to pay attention to that. I want to direct my awareness, my internal awareness to something that's external to me because it's interesting, because it lights up parts of my brain that go, oh, that's exciting. I want to engage with that or I want to explore that or I want to work that out. And that's really how that attention system starts. And if we take that principle all the way through our entire discussion tonight, that attention really is our ability to focus on the relevant sensory information while blocking out everything else. Yes. And if we can block out everything else, focus in on what's important, that allows us to achieve things. It allows us to master things. It allows us to have a social and emotional engagement with somebody else. But it just gets more complicated as the kids get older. Absolutely. So that baby stage, you've talked a lot about the adult, I guess, doing that bit more work to engage a child and to get their attention. At what point is the adult doing less work? Is that when they're kind of around the preschool age, like around four? What changes and at what age does that kind of change? Well, I think children go through the levels of attention. They start to grow those different attention systems it ebbs and flows. So at the beginning of that next stage, so if we look at joint attention as being the first, or the reactional attention as that first stage I just talked about, where the baby's like, oh, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I'm going to look at that or I'm going to want to reach out and try and touch that. As the baby gets better and better, okay, you can leave the baby on floor time and they can do that same engagement and attention with you know, the mobile that's above them. They don't need all the emotion and the engagement from a family member or a parent. Then as you start to get back up into more of that joint attention, you and I can play together on that activity. When that's starting to develop, you're going to need a lot of support for that child to bring their awareness into you and I together on that activity. But then as they get better and better, it becomes more about imagination, more about creative play, less about the joint attention. And then as we start getting more and more advanced in those attention skills, it comes and goes between how much work the parent does or the teacher versus how much work the child does. Okay. So really some of the key things for those who have babies, if we kind of look at parents and how to grow attention skills in their babies, obviously there's lots of toys out there, etc. I mean, for that baby age group birth to, let's say, two, for example, what are some of the key things that parents should look at in terms of just reinforcing and growing attention skills? So I think with that really young age, we are looking at that rich sensory experience. So cause and effect, if I press this, it makes a sound. Looking at building also to that, that emotional engagement too and, and showing that you did that you know, you were able to achieve that, wow, like I'm going to show you my emotion, my positive emotion around that. And I think too, it's, it's about making sure that we're also challenging that attention system, not in a really, really busy environment, but actually allowing it to be more of a, a quiet environment where we just focus in on one thing. You know, so it is about getting the child to really notice the subtleties and really 
engage with what that object does. So whether that's a toy that lights up, a toy that goes rolling, a sensation in their hands, to talk about what it feels like, to talk about that sensory experience so we're getting the layering of the conversation and the language with the feeling and the sensory component as well and they're getting that relationship building component as well. Whilst that sounds really complicated in how I've just described it, it's really beautiful to watch when you see, I've seen a a mother do it with a leaf. They picked up a dried leaf from the ground and just started twisting it near baby and baby sort of went, oh, like you sort of saw the eyes go onto that leaf. They saw that that immediate sensory awareness of, oh, that's something that's moving. And then that mum just very subtly started moving that leaf differently and then moving it side to side and watching how baby was able to hold it in that vision. And then once it started to drift away, made another sound and mum made it more exciting and really looking at just expanding how you can keep that engagement on an object or a toy using playfulness. Yes. And there is a bit of a balance, isn't there, between giving the child the opportunity to independently explore a toy. So there's a certain amount that they can get from that. But then when you add the layering of another human who's interacting and adding words and adding sounds and adding, you know, a different way of moving that item or object, it just boosts that experience by 300%, doesn't it? It certainly does. And I think it layers in really lovely that emotional and social foundations for kids. And look, I'm still an advocate for children having floor time and tummy time and play time where they are on their own and learning how to engage with the world around them without that parental scaffolding, but not until they've got those skills with the parental scaffolding. So I think it's once you start to see that ability emerging with kids with that support, that's the time when you can expect that they are able to do that more and more on their own as opposed to I'll do that bit first and when I can start to see that that's where their attention or their skill set is building to, then I'll jump back in and engage with them once they have it. I find a lot more that the learning is a much richer process when it's the other way around. Yes, absolutely. So what then changes from, say, that toddler age to the preschooler age before they go to school? How are we then looking at growing a child's attention skills? How does it change? I think as you're looking at that sort of preschool to school transition, you know, we would expect that children have that joint attention skill and certainly the reactive attention. But at that age, we're starting to build a lot more focused attention and sustained attention. So by that, I mean a focused attention is I can block out what's going on around me and I can choose to focus in on what's important. At that young age, it's generally what's important is what's important to them and what's exciting for them. So they might be able to play their favourite game in a noisy background and not feel overwhelmed by that sensory environment. That they can know that they need to pay attention to mum or dad when they're walking across a busy road or that they're getting to the edge of that road. They know they need to watch for mum and dad and hold that parent's hand and then walk across the road safely without kind of going, oh, what's that other bright and shiny thing that I want to go and run after? It's like I have a goal right now, which is walking across the road with mum safely. I'm focusing on the fact that I have to hold mum's hand and not worry about what else is exciting around me. If we then look at the sustained attention. I was just going to say that can be a real challenge for some kids, especially children Mm. that do have difficulties with attention or other developmental issues going on that can be extremely challenging you know something simple like you know having to cross the road or 
I mean, look, it's going to be different for every person, but it can be a huge challenge. What can a parent do besides kind of raising their voice a little to kind of say, okay, I'm increasing my voice volume because I really need you to, I'm not saying yell at them, but I'm increasing my voice volume so that you can understand that this is important. Mm -hmm. What else is happening? What else can a parent do and and other things that they do need to put in place for kids that actually do have something that is stopping that ability for them to focus their attention? Yeah, definitely. Look, I think if we continue on with our example of being out on needing to cross roads and needing to have that safety there, every child is different and this strategy may or may not work for for you particular for different listeners. But one thing that I do know around that focused attention is if we can actually apply meaning to all the other things that a child might be interested in, it takes the novelty and takes that reactiveness away from the bright and shiny things that are out in the world and helps a child to realise the importance of what we need to focus on and gives them an opportunity to understand why. So what I'd be suggesting is before you get to the road, and you're not on the edge of the road, but you might be leading up to that and you've stopped a, a fair way back, it's about just taking a moment to pause and sort of looking at, okay, what else, what can you see? Like, what's happening? Where are we going? What's over here? Where's the button? Are you going to press the button for the walk sign or am I going to do it? And constantly almost giving that narrative of what are we focusing on right now? So as you're walking up, where's the button we need to press? Where's the circle button? And then allowing that child to go and find the button and touch it. As you're waiting, you know, parents to be pointing out things like, okay, well, we need to wait because the, the red man is still up on the pole. Can you see him up there? Where is he? And then slowly kind of going through that narrative of what does the child need to be focusing their attention on right now? And can I use that cognitive scaffolding or that conversation with my child to help them realise what they need to focus on and focus their attention on? Fantastic. And that is super valuable advice, Jackie. And I think if I can add one other layer to that scenario Mm. from a speech pathologist's point of view, sometimes we need to remember that we need to get down to the child's level or for some parents they're holding their child up so that we can have that eye contact, that face-to-face focus. And that can also intensify that focused attention on what you're telling them. And so I would just kind of add that in there, just, you know, crouching down, making sure you've got that face-to-face attention going on and then talking through what might be coming next. And then, yes, pointing out the different things in the environment. Some kids may not need that, but some kids do. I thought it's just worth saying at this point, if we feel that Mm. child is just not quite zoning in on what we're telling them, that we stop, pause, get down to their level, or if they're young enough, we can hold them up and then have that face-to-face. So, yeah, just throw that in there. Definitely. Very helpful, definitely. So we're obviously on the topic of growing attention skills. So if we've looked at the babies, we've looked at that preschool and transition to school age, do we grow attention skills very differently once a child is at school? I think we do because I think there's a loading on our thinking skills that we start to become more and more complex in our thinking. I think it becomes a little less sort of specific in how we teach attention. It's almost like just part of the experience of school and it comes more around short-term memory and working memory that we try and hold our attention skills as opposed to that social emotional play and personal safety, which is what those sort of first couple of stages are about. You know, I think our school system is less around exploring the environment and more about following the routine and the expectations and 
that just means we need to be a little bit more clever about how we teach attention or how we grow attention skills in that environment because that's the way our school system in a lot of places is, is structured. If we look at that with a sustained attention, it's about the child knowing the end point, having an idea about what the goal is. So a lot of the time when I work with children who are in that early stage, kindergarten, year one, a lot of the times when they've got attention and concentration difficulties, it's because they actually don't have an idea about what the overarching expectation is and they haven't been able to form you know, the plans for themselves to be able to understand what is it that my teacher is asking me to do? What is it that I need to do in this learning exercise that gives me the motivation to go right through from start to finish? And that's what sustained attention is. It's being able to continue to work through problem solving, continue to work through gathering information, sorting it out and putting it into a plan until that task is done. So a lot of kids think their task is done, but they haven't actually remembered that they've got to do the other side of the page or they sort of get halfway through a worksheet and that's as much as they know how to do competently and they don't ask for help and then they're finished. So they sit there and they get distracted for the rest of the lesson and the teacher comes up and says, well, why haven't you finished? It's like, well, I have. I got to the end point of my knowledge, not the end point of the worksheet. Okay. So it sounds like, yeah, for those kids, and I'm thinking of kids that we work with, there needs to be some really clear, explicit teaching of what the start and the end point is. And for some kids breaking down those steps more clearly, so it makes sense to them and giving them the strategy of knowing when to ask for help too, because some of them don't know that cue of I thought I was fine. I didn't know I needed help. So there's a real, a lot of explicit teaching that needs to go on there around the steps of a task, breaking it down and making the boundaries clear. Does that sound about right? Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of the time too, just the only other thing I'd add in that section is that kids need to have a plan. They need to know how to ask for help and how to break, you know, how to actually put that into action. They need to know that that's accessible. So even for a child to be told, not just told that they need to ask for help, but actually shown how to ask for help in different situations so that that feels comfortable and it's a natural step for the child to take in that complex learning environment, in the home environment, and actually making asking for help or clarifying information, make that an okay thing for children to do because it is, you know, it's part of learning. If you don't understand the expectation, there is no way that you're going to be able to meet that expectation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes even just with our language, just reinforcing to the child if they have asked for help, just saying, oh, it's great you asked for help. It's a good thing to do when you're not sure. Like just actually saying that out loud to them, that reinforces them going, okay, it's cool. I can do this when I need to. So I think sometimes we just assume that a child will just ask for help, but they don't always do it. So when they do, I think it's good to remember to just explicitly and very specifically reinforce them for that so they know it's okay. So one of the things that I do want to move on to talking about, Jackie, we've talked a little bit about children with attention difficulties and providing them with scaffolds and breaking down tasks and that kind of thing. When children do have difficulties with their attention, how does someone know when those difficulties kind of tick over into the category of ADD or ADHD? How do you differentiate? And this is something that obviously pediatricians 
do the diagnosing and they differentiate the two. But can you tell us a little bit from your knowledge as to what does cause someone to kind of tick over into that category of ADD or ADHD? Yes, it's a great question because it's one that parents ask me all the time. You know, is this just something he's going to grow out of or who else do I need to go and speak with? And I think when you worked on attention and concentration from a teaching and a parental and even, you know, for a short period of time, a therapy point of view, and you're not seeing the changes, you know, if you've implemented a couple of things that I spoke about in, in the first conversation that we had and then parents have implemented a couple of things that I've already mentioned, and it's not having an effect and you've still got a child who's actively seeking things that appear like distractions or they're just very, very much not able to engage in that learning how to pay attention, that's when I'd be saying, look, go and speak to your GP, do some of the screening questionnaires and some of the conversations with your GP about the potential of whether there's ADD or ADHD there. And like you said, Sonia, it is really about the paediatrician diagnosing and really analysing that behaviour pattern in a lot more detail and, and doing the assessments there. I typically find that parents' intuition or parents' gut is usually pretty accurate once you've taken a few steps to making some improvements in attention and concentration and looking at whether it's hearing or eyesight and going through all these other sort of developmental checks just general health to start with and then looking at going to speak to the paediatrician or the GP. Yeah, good advice. Definitely good advice. And I think medication is a topic that comes up too. And obviously parents have that conversation with paediatricians. But I know that personally as a speech pathologist, and I'm sure you get it too, parents ask us, what do you think about medication? Because oftentimes they're looking at us as a trusted advisor. What do you suggest or what do you recommend when parents do come to you seeking that second opinion kind of conversational question? It's a very common question. And I do answer it in a very similar way for anyone who asks me. And Medication is out of my main. It's something that I appreciate when it's needed and the benefits it can bring to certain families, but it is a discussion that people need to be having with either their GP or their paediatrician who are prescribing that medication or, or suggesting it. And the questions that I arm parents with is parents need to know what benefit that medication may or may not have for their child. They need to know what side effects it may or may not have for their child. And I understand where parents are coming from when they're asking our opinion as trusted supporters and people who are in that care network for their child. But I think it is about having those really informed discussions with people who, the paediatricians and the GPs, who understand the medications and why they're recommending it. When I would encourage parents to go and seek that advice more actively is when we're not seeing progress in a therapy setting because the child is too stressed or really doesn't have those fundamental capacities or or abilities to engage in the therapy process when the child is really struggling and where that struggle is is present and look sometimes medication is not a an ongoing thing for some children it is for other children it's the kickstart that their system needs to learn some of these strategies that we talk about in therapy and the things that we do and for others it becomes a lifelong in Again, I can't stress enough how much it is a conversation to be having with the paediatrician or the GP and asking enough questions until, as parents, you feel 100% confident with your decision one way or the other. And in our practice, we respect parents 
whichever way they go because it's a decision that I can't influence. Absolutely. And I completely agree. Having that good conversation and a very informed conversation is what needs to happen with the paediatrician and or GP. So when we look at kind of that first base of seeing an occupational therapist because there are attention difficulties, for you specifically, Jackie, and I know OTs work differently in different settings, but for you specifically, what can a parent expect when they come along and see you for an assessment for their child who has attention issues? Okay, well, look, our, yeah, our pathway that we, we take parents down and, and families down is I really want to know what it is in your day-to-day that is tricky. You might have had the teacher say, hey, there's attention and concentration issues, but I want to know what that looks like. So families will have a, a quick chat, probably about 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minute conversation with one of our, one of our team that really looks at understanding that lived experience, understanding how does attention and concentration difficulties play out in the day? When is it more of an issue? When is it not present? What have the parents already tried to make amends? Because out of all that information, we can have a pretty good idea about whether this is purely attention and concentration, other underlying things that contribute to attention, you know, postural reflexes, emotional and sensory development those types of things and then we can be really informed about that first appointment that your child comes to rather than going through a block standard assessment of everything in development we want to be really specific and targeted to looking at from that difficulty or those difficulties that children are having day to day what do we need to assess or trial in a first appointment to get some practical strategies up and running from day one so after that conversation, you'd come in for an assessment and that usually takes about 90 minutes for our, for our children to do. Depend, a little bit shorter for really young babies and also really a little bit shorter for our sort of high school end. We're looking at posture, reflexes, emotional regulation, the sensory system, cognition, communication, social skills, but all within the context of why you've come to see us in the first place. Most of the time it looks like play. You know, kids and younger teenagers come into the clinic, everything we do looks like play. There might be one or two things that we specifically sit down and say, okay, now we need to see some handwriting. And unfortunately, there's no way to make that too fun for kids if they're having difficulties with it. But again, that's where explaining the means to an end is important for kids and families to understand that we do need to see some of these difficulties in action. And we're, we're always looking at that clinically, though. We're looking at that with the lens of why is that difficult or, wow, you're really good at that. Wow, I wonder why that is and how can we use that, difficult, that strength to match back in with the challenges that you're having. Again, we agree on goals and an approach to take and that approach is where it really differs between what we see in the assessment but also between different practices and different trainings that other organisations have had or that, again, my therapist have all had different trainings that they utilise with different families really varies, Sonia, between different families depending on whether it's a home visit, a clinic visit, weekly, fortnightly. Some of my families, we do monthly sessions because they're brilliant at doing home programs and it's a teach the parents how to be a therapist model. It really depends on the family and the child and what suits them best. But look, the one thing that they all have in common is we celebrate those little wins. We celebrate the big wins. We celebrate the things that don't work because then we know they don't work and we can move in a different direction. But that's, that's a therapy process for us. It's, it's very flexible. It's always play-based and education-based. I really want my families 
when I work with them and and the kids as well. Like I educate my five-year-olds on what their brain is doing when their body is not paying attention or when they're finding it hard to do handwriting or struggling with sensory processing. We'll explain the theory and the reasoning behind it. And our kids, are they love that. They love to know that it's not them being naughty a lot of the time. It's the fact their brain needs to learn more and their brain needs to practice more. And I find that's a really empowering way for kids to look at their difficulties because it's not about me being bad at something or being bad in general. It's, I haven't learned this yet. I need to practice. And I think that's the biggest thing that we really, I won't say promote, but we really talk about a lot in our therapy pathway that it is about not yet and growing and learning. That sounds absolutely amazing, Jackie, honestly. And it sounds very customized. It sounds fun sounds friendly and it sounds really positive and that's really what as parents and also as professionals but as parents that's what we want to see we want to see our kids having fun whilst they're learning and the fact that there's that extra layer of them understanding themselves better just would do wonders for their own self-esteem and their own understanding of themselves and I think that's absolutely vital and crucial for their success And I dare say it's a crucial life skill. So being able to understand themselves to that level is just brilliant. And what you've done there is you've described assessment and you've also kind of gone into what therapy looks like a little bit too and that the frequency can be different for different families and for different children depending on what is going on. But obviously everything is very tailored to suit every the context of every family and what's going on for them as well as the child. Is there anything that you wanted to add, Jackie, to you know what therapy does look like and how long it might take just to kind of wrap things up for us? I get that question a lot from families and initially my answer is how long is a piece of string? But once we've done maybe one or two sessions and we've seen how their child is responding to our strategies, we can give them a pretty good picture about how long it's going to take. Now, if we're talking about a little baby who's just not quite paying attention to those environmental cues, a lot of the time that's a couple of sessions to do some parent training around how do you make the environment more exciting to give that consultation around have we checked all of those medical things like their hearing and their eyesight and giving more of that parent coaching, which doesn't take a lot of therapy time, but it might be a case of here's some strategies, go and implement for six months and come back and see me or come back and see me in three months if you're still quite concerned. Usually our preschool to school age children are doing about 10 sessions in that school readiness, attention, concentration, self-management, organisational sort of space. Again, this will be a little bit longer if there's another diagnosis there you know, or sort of children with developmental delay or autism spectrum disorder or ADHD for some of our sort of six, seven, eight-year-olds. But yeah, as I said, it's very flexible and it's very tailored to the family. And if a family comes to us and says, look, we really don't have the finances to do a long block of therapy, you know what, we can do education style. And as long as parents are prepared to you know, do a bit of work at home, we've also got therapy assistants and OT students that can support that ongoing practice as well. But at the other point, other end of the you know, scale, some of our families are sort of saying, look, he learns really, really well when he's here in the clinic. There's too many distractions at home or our life is chaotic and, and it's just much more practical for them to come here to clinic than it is for us to go to the houses. It is individualised and it's something that we speak to families about the whole way through that process about what is 
required from a clinical professional point of view, but really what's practical from a financial and just lifestyle perspective for a family as well. Absolutely. That sounds fantastic, Jackie. Absolutely fantastic. And I think, you know, the key message is that if parents are worried, there's certainly, you know, occupational therapists that can help a great deal and that can make kind of suggestions for ongoing referrals if need be. I think OTs are often the first base for a lot of families with attention issues. So certainly following up any concerns so that you get that peace of mind, speak to someone that works within the realm of attention difficulties and just get the ball rolling. Being proactive, just get the ball rolling. There's obviously techniques and strategies and therapy styles that work and there is a way out of those attention difficulties for want of putting it another way. So I think understanding there is that level of hope there is really important and just taking action. That's kind of the thing to do. If there's any niggle or worry, just take action and start that process of chipping away and getting to that success piece. Thank you so much, Jackie, for joining part two chat of Attention Learning and Your Child. You have been absolutely amazing in providing us so many tools and so many really cool strategies and things that we can do in our everyday to build attention. And I'm so grateful that you have joined us for two episodes of Chat About Children. So thank you so much. Awesome. It is my pleasure. And I'm such a big advocate for education and sharing those practical strategies with parents and with teachers and anyone who's willing to listen because it's the practical strategies that make daily life easier. And that's why I'm here. That's why I do what I do. Fantastic. We'll keep doing it, Jackie. (laughs) Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you for sharing in the chat with me today on Attention, Learning and Your Child Part 2, that was, with Jackie Peel. Coming up, we have a short break over Australian summer, but next episode will be on the 16th of January, and that's when I'm going to chat to a very passionate optometrist about how to best protect your child's eyes. So make sure you tune in for that one. If you did enjoy today's episode, please remember to subscribe to the Chat About Children podcast and to share the episodes with your family, friends, and colleagues. I also have show notes on the chataboutchildren.com website, so make sure you check out the site and all the valuable resources that we have there, www.chataboutchildren.com. I celebrate you. Look forward to chatting soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich, www.chataboutchildren.com.